I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 155. Look, let's just jump right in to, uh, I almost pulled, uh, Gertrude and Paula. Kinda, but not so, but kinda, but not really, but kinda. Alrighty. So, at the beginning of my story, I think at the beginning, somewhere in the story, when I was saying the ages of Robert and Michael, I flipped their ages. So, Robert was the older, 18, Michael's the younger. But Michael is the one that we got to hear his, like, whole confession, like, see the video of it and all of that. And Robert is the one that testified at Michael's trial. So, anyway, just to clarify that, Robert is the older of the brothers. How you just said that, it sounded like you were Mari and you are like, you are the father. You are both in jail for the rest of your lives. As you should be. Is there something in the universe happening right now? Because I feel like you and I have both been so tired lately. Oh my gosh. Beyond tired. And like feeling like I'm so behind in everything. Mm -hmm. I had just gotten caught back up at work. I'm behind again. I'm behind on all my Facebook notifications. I feel like I can't keep up with anything. Like in life. Not like actual like, oh, I lost my pen. Like no, like I can't. Like I'm... I'm on a hamster wheel. Like, is that is yeah. something in retrograde that I don't know about? Also, all I'm doing is craving sweets. Yes. What the fuck? It's ridiculous. But, like, I literally take medicine that's supposed to make me not crave sweets, and that's all I fucking wanted for the past two weeks. Same. Three weeks. I don't know. A lot. A l- way too long. Mm-hmm. So whatever the fuck is in retrograde needs to be in anterior grade because this is fucked up. Right. Well, you know what's not fucked up? Patreoners! Exactly. Thank you so much, Lisa C. from Michigan. Laura O. from Australia. Nicole K. from New York. Paige M. from Michigan. Tanya F. from Ohio. Jerry A. from California. Joe E. from... (laughs) That sounds like Joey, Mm -hmm. but not. Joe E. from New Hampshire. Jen F. from New York City. Just kidding. New York. Stephanie S. from Texas. Ooh. And Christine M. from Pennsylvania. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Check out the tiers. See if one, you know, fits what you're looking for. And we know that not everybody can support us on Patreon and totally understand that. But there are other ways to support us. So don't forget to... Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and join the Facebook group. Twitter and Instagram are both at the APC podcast. And, you know, we're going to try TikTok, which is also at the APC podcast. But right now there's like mm, two and they're both um, of our dogs. But we don't know how to make TikToks. They're hard. So if y'all know how to make them, tell us. Can y'all just send us like a a dummy's guide to making TikToks? But for real though. But like, like Cliff's notes, like I need, I need like keep it simple stupid Mm -hmm. because i'm not i don't like to read instructions i hand the instructions to donna and say read them and tell me what to do and then she says give them here yeah and then i say oh there's too many words read it (laughs) yes literally that's how we do things Mm -hmm. all right my story this week is a quite an old recommendation like legit we're going back to a screenshot i took back in october of 2019 from the facebook group so, thank you, Karen B., who recommended this way back when in the Creepinati Facebook page. Okay, picture it. May 21st, 
1981. We're in Bradley, Illinois. A little girl named Tara Sue Huffman, she's in kindergarten, and she had gotten, look, this is, you're going to be like, oh my God, our middle school did the same fucking shit. She had perfect attendance, and so she got to go to the roller skating rink. Do you remember when we got to do that? If you had perfect attendance or you made honor roll, you got to go to a skating rink? Or the all right card. Was that the honor roll? I don't I think the all right card was like good behavior. Okay, because I got the all right card. I mean, I got an honor roll, but like the all right card never got perfect attendance. No, you never went to school. One time they gave me the perfect attendance thing and I was like, I'm going up on the stage, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> I did not have that for this nine weeks, y'all. But okay, I'll take the card because if you got all three, you got an extra thing. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. I mean, I'm okay. And I did. I got some extra thing. Oh, what was the extra thing? I don't know. But uh, yes. Because they're all different three colors and shit. Did you get student of the week ever? Yeah. Of course, of course I did. did. I mean, I did too. Mm-hmm. And I took that on the bus. On the bus, mama. which is such a dangerous thing. It was like it this really yard was. sign that you could like stab somebody with on the bus. Mm-hmm. I was like so embarrassed and yet so proud. I know. So that morning, Tara had gone to the skating rink. At about noon, 12.15, her mom and her sister picked her up from the skating rink. Tara was the youngest of all of her siblings, and she was one of those oops kids like her parents were i think her mom was like 40 when she had them and her sibling closest to her was at least 13 years older than her like it was a she had siblings that were married and moved on out of the house so there was this significant age gap but she was super close to her family i mean she had when she was born her parents already had grandkids So she had nieces and nephews that were older than her. After her mom and her sister pick her up, they go kind of piddle around town a little bit, stop at some garage sales, which is so something I can see you and your mom doing and your sister Lori when you were younger and they were both adults. But they got home at about 1.30 and Tara changed into her play clothes and she was going to the neighbor's house to play. So Tara put on a little pair of shorts and a shirt. And I mean, she ran off to play, like didn't even put on her shoes. Who is she? Tiffany? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That girl can walk anywhere without shoes. (laughs) I'm the exact opposite. You don't even walk around your house without shoes. No, I have house shoes. I go from my flip-flops to my house shoes to my flip-flops to my house (laughs) shoes. Like it's, I have shoes in different rooms. I'm weird. It's the grit. Maybe if I... Uh, uh, why don't you sweep every so often? I, You know, I do. I blame it on Marley. But she has no problem with it. That motherfucker doesn't wear shoes. I'm not, I, I can't even with you. <laughs> At about 2.30 that afternoon, Tara's brother Richard came home. He was the brother that still lived at home, was closest in age, although still, again, like 13 or 15 years apart. But they had a pretty tight bond, those two. They went fishing together all the time. Tara was known as this outdoorsy type. Like she loved frogs and bugs and fishing and she just loved to get dirty. And so when Richard was out and about, he had found this turtle that was painted. And so he was bringing it home to give to Tara. 
Like, was it alive or just a turtle shell? Okay, I pictured alive this whole time until I literally said the words to you, and I was like, hmm, maybe it wasn't alive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> all these days I've been prepping for this. I've been picturing this live turtle that somebody painted and that he just found on the side of the road. And then now I'm like, maybe it wasn't alive. Maybe it was just a shell. It could be, but you know they did those hermit crabs. Yeah, can you believe? I mean, yes, because I also got the axolotl from the mall. But man, I was so close to getting a hermit crab from the mall because I wanted to get one of the cool shells to put it in. I'm not surprised in the fucking least. And they terrified me. And so then apparently I was like, "Oh, I'll get something that's a little more gross in dirty water." Oh, an axolotl. Oh, and it's more expensive. <laughs> Imagine fucking that. I know. Okay. I think it was an actual turtle, though. But anyway. So he gets home to give it to her, and her mom's like, oh, well, she's actually at the neighbor's house playing. She'll be home in a little while. So he waits for a little while, and some stuff says he calls the neighbor's house. Some stuff says he went over to the neighbor's house. But either way, he finds out that she's not there, but she's also not home. So when Richard told his mom that, she's like, wait, what? So she goes over there and they say, no, she hasn't been here for a while. But they're like, you know, I don't actually even remember seeing her leave the yard. So, of course, at that point, Tara's mom starts searching everywhere. They're looking all over the neighborhood and nobody knows where she is. By five o'clock they decide that it's time to call the police. After they called police, basically everyone in the neighborhood kind of banded together to search for this missing child. I mean, she's a kindergartner, for God's sake. She's a little girl. I mean, no five-year-old's capable of being gone this long without some some help. You know, I mean, right. this is not fucking home alone. Right. So Tara's dad was actually home from some sort of work-related injury. So he wasn't able to go out and help search. So he stayed at home, basically kind of like man the phones kind of thing. And so Tara's mom and siblings, including Richard, went out looking, trying to find Tara, along with all the neighbors and police. While they're searching for the body, Richard sees this kid, looks like a kind of a preteen kid, sitting on this porch and their eyes meet and he's like, who is this kid? Like, this guy's weird. Like, why is he looking at me like this? Like, this is just fucking, this dude's weird. He kind of moves on, but he just remembers it and it just stuck out in his brain, you know, but he goes on because the bigger fucking fish to fry. He's looking for his missing sister. Right? right. Right. But that's fucking, it was weird. Well, as this, kind of caravan of people on a four-wheeler go by that kid's house to go look at this landfill kind of dump area in town. He joins them. And again, everybody's kind of spread out everywhere looking. And they had kind of already looked in one area of this landfill. But as they split off, he went over to the area where they had 
not where they had already looked, but it kind of sort of been cleared. I don't know. It was kind of just weird how he went over there. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, well, she's not going to be over. It's like this pit. Like, okay, well, she's not going to be. Okay, whatever. Go ahead. You know? Yeah. And they went on. You know, it was just like, he just like immediately just kind of broke off and went over there. It was just weird. Kind of like how John Bonet Ramsey's dad went straight to the basement. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, okay. So the people who were with them, you know, they're still looking in the landfill. And then and then they hear that kid yell that he had found the body of Tara. Oh, my gosh. There's another adult male kind of in the vicinity that hears him say, like, hey, hey, you know, I found her body. Hey, hey, are you okay? I know you wanted to say it. I you. So the kid that finds her. Picks her up, like, out of this pit to be like, hey, I found her body. But listen to this. When he picks her up, he doesn't, like, cradle her. Like, how you would hold a baby, cradle her. He, like, picks her up under the arms like Simba. Oh, my gosh. That's bizarre, right? Yes. Okay. Just making sure. Because when I heard that, I was like, that's fucking, that's weird. Yeah. And so he, like, holds her out to give her to this other man that's, or you know, this man that's there. And is like, hey, look, here, I found her. And he's, that man, his name's Alan Kaufman, not that that matters. But he's like, uh, 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 uh let me go get help. You know, because he's like, I don't fucking want to touch her. And I don't know, you shit, let mm-hmm. me go get help. And he's like, let me go get the cops, you know. Yeah. And so that kid, like, lays her back down. I feel like that's how you would hold a baby, like, of... I don't, this thing's crying and it's butt stinks. What do I do with this thing? Yeah. You know, I don't know. That was just a. It would be a way that you could help, like you would hold someone if you were trying to get them out of the pit to like, here, I'm going to push you up and like you grab onto the person's hand. If they were alive. I'm saying if they were alive, but she was clearly dead. And And how deep is this pit? You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know how deep the pit is. Like I'm picturing like. Like a like a ditch, you know what I mean, for him to be able to like get her, uh, you know what I mean. I'm seriously by pit. I really think it's like a ditch. I don't know, but I'm saying like so. I get if that was it, but that's weird as fuck. Like that is not she dead. So like it's a cradle thing, and it's also a, you don't touch the dead body. And it's also pause for a second to say trigger warning. It's about to get gruesome. So if you need to. Skip forward, skip forward. Also, it's a five-year-old. So, you cradle that baby. You think that it would be like, oh my God, it's this child that's missing. Like, here she is. And if y'all could see me, I'm doing all kinds of hand motions right now. Okay. So, this is, again, like I said, where it's going to get pretty gruesome. When police get to Tara's body, it's nude except for a t-shirt that is pulled up to her underarms. Her face is covered in blood, and there is a stick protruding from her anus. Oh, my goodness. And And this is after he's picked her up and put her back down? I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah. So police bring that kid into custody just to get a statement because, hello, you found the body. Like, let's get a statement. His name is is Timothy Buss. When police bring him in, 
they have his dad with him. His name's David. They read them the Miranda rights and say, you know, if you want an attorney, you're more than welcome to have one. And his dad's like, do we need one? But the police are like, I don't know. Do you? Timothy was wearing a white t-shirt with some blue jeans and sneakers. And the juvenile officer that had been with Timothy the whole time he was waiting to come down to the police station, like while they were, you know, doing the stuff with the body or whatever, you know, while they were waiting to come down or waiting for the interrogation and all of that, said that he was just bizarre, just kind of unemotional. I mean, not that he should be like, I mean, he didn't know the kid, but also like you just found a dead body of a child. You know, you'd expect some level of emotion, but he was just asking weird questions and talking about trouble that he had been in in the juvenile system before, just weird stuff. So when police go to talk to him, they ask him just routine questions like, what have you done today? And he says that he didn't go to school that day because his class was going on a field trip. I think they were going to Six Flags and that it was too expensive. And so he wasn't going to go. And so he just didn't go to school that day because he wasn't going on the field trip. So he said that morning he went to his aunt's house. And then he said he talked about going and helping this guy wash his car and then eating hamburgers with his cousin and then watching TV and then going to another friend's house. I mean, he just had like specifics. They went to his grandmother's house. I mean, specific timelines. He said that he was looking for some kids to play softball with. And then he said that when he was at his aunt's house, he put his baseball glove and bat up after he was playing softball and that he went across the street to the Smith's house. And that's where Tara was like, was supposed to have been when Richard went and looked for her and she wasn't there. And they told Timothy that Tara was missing. Timothy said the Smiths told him how Tara liked to swim. And so they started going by the creek to look for her body. And that, you know, when he's walking around all of that, he saw an arm sticking out and like from some rubber, then he moved the rubber. And that's when he saw her body and that she had blood coming from her nose. He said that he like felt her throat and then that her arms were stiff and that her eyes were like partially open and that that's when he yelled for help. Maybe when you see an arm out of the water. I don't know. I just feel like because Timothy's 13. So I just wonder, is that a normal reaction for a 13 to be like, oh, well, let me feel her throat. Oh, her arms are stiff. You know, I don't know. It, I just feel like that's not a normal. Like, I feel like a normal reaction for a 13 would be like, oh, my God, I found a body. You know, yeah. not like, OK, let me feel her throat. Look at these arms, you know, pick her up. That wouldn't I just feel like maybe if and maybe I shouldn't say normal, a typical. And maybe if they were by themselves and they came upon a dead body. It'd be different, but everyone's searching for this person. Everyone's around them. Right. So, you know, you don't have time to be like, whoa, is this person dead? Like, what's going on? No. Like, you know what I mean? You're searching for this specific person. Yes. 
she's five. Yeah, uh, eh, that's, mm, yeah, it's not typical. Well, then one of the police officers that was listening to Timothy's account of his day heard him talk about going and hanging out with this kid. And they were like, wait, that kid's in Florida with his dad. And so they were like, bruh, is blah, blah, blah in Florida with his dad? And it's like, yeah, like, like going to live in Florida with his dad, like, like not here anymore, going to live in Florida with his dad, right? Like not just visiting. And so they confronted Timothy and was like, so you're saying you hung out with Bob. Let's call him Bob because minor. So you're saying you hung out with Bob today. Are you sure? Yeah, I hung out with Bob. It's like Bob Smith, made up name. And he's like, yeah, yeah like, like firm in it. He's like, and then when they say, well, he moved to Florida with his dad. He's like, no, 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 no. I hung out with him. Like, so firm in that that's who he hung out with. But they're like, no, no. He's not even in town. Like, you, there's no fucking way. They did notice that he had a few scratches on his face. And that there were some kind of reddish brown stains on the thigh of his pants. And so when all that kind of went down about the friend being out of town, his dad kind of realized like, fuck, this isn't going right. Like, maybe we do need an attorney. Like, can we go? They're like, yeah, 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 but we need your clothes for processing. And so they leave the clothes and they leave the station. And by this time, it's like five o'clock in the morning. Also, one thing that I want to, a little aside about... I feel so sorry for Tara's brother, Richard, because, you know, when he and his mom are out, you know, looking for the body and they're told that they found a body and it's, you know, they're obviously it's Tara, like his mom passed out because she was so distraught, but he had to go home and tell his dad because his dad was at home with this work related injury and couldn't be a part of it. So he had to go home and tell his dad, I guess, you know, before anybody called or whatever. I mean, could you, ima- I mean, I mean, I know you can't imagine because you told your dad about your mom. And, I mean, I know you can imagine, but it's just like, gosh. Well, and you told my dad about Lori, my sister. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah. But my sister was in her 40s and not five, but and- still. And the active dying process from cancer and not a child. Wow. So police have a suspect in Timothy. They know that everything is weird. You know, how he found the body. Just his interactions are weird. His story of the day is kind of, uh, you know, he's got these stains that they're checking out. But... Really, that's all they've got. So they start doing some canvassing. And one of the women in the neighborhood remembers at like one o'clock in the morning, like apparently like shoots up out of bed and is like, holy fuck. Because she remembered at about 2.30 that afternoon that a boy had come around and knocked on her door and asked if he could borrow the wooden wagon that was in her yard. Because he said that he had a barrel that he needed to transport and he needed a way to move it. 
Oh, okay. Sorry. I was thinking like a wheelbarrow, and I was like, uh, it transports itself, honey. No, like a but barrel. A barrel. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But also, uh, you can roll it. She said that the kid was wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a baseball cap. She said he was like pouring sweat. And he said that the barrel was just full of shit because he had been cleaning, well, he didn't say shit, but been cleaning out of the garage and he wanted to take the barrel to the dump. Mm-hmm. Because this dump slash landfill where she was found, it was a place that all the residents of this town really did just take their shit and dump it. Like it really was yeah. the town dump. Fuck him for putting her body there. And hindsight's twenty twenty because looking back, She's like, you know, he didn't really, there wasn't a whole lot of eye contact, and he seemed really nervous. He had real thick lips. <laughs> thick lips. I, and I'm just going to say, fucking Timothy Buss had some real thick lips. That was one of the first things. <laughs> I didn't even know that about this this statement when before I saw his damn picture. I was like, damn, he got some big ass lips. <laughs> what a waste. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have those? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So she let him borrow it because, again, it's the 80s small town. Like, yeah, borrow it because he's like, I'll bring it back. And sure as shit, later she's like, oh, well, I guess he brought the wagon back because it was back in her front yard. Well, when she remembered it, she told her husband, because he was a former police officer, and he's like, no, you need to call. Uh-huh. Because he said he could have rolled that barrel. <laughs> so, they come to the house, get her statement, and pick the wagon up for forensics. So, when they say, well, who was the kid that asked for it? She says, what's the one who found her body? Wait, so she already knew? She had put it together. Oh, okay. They pulled her in for a lineup, and she identified Timothy as, okay, he's the one who borrowed my wagon. There were quite a few other neighbors who had witnessed Timothy with a barrel going towards the landfill and then like with a wagon and then with an empty wagon coming back. Some people saw him standing at his aunt's house on the porch with a small child. They knew that his grandmother had two barrels very similar to that, and now she has one. And then when they found the barrel at the landfill, it had traces of blood Ooh. that was consistent with Tara's. Oh, gosh. And on the outside of the lid was Timothy's palm print. And then the barrel, what they were able to specifically link it to his grandmother's job. Like it was the barrel mm. from her job that she had the two of, you know, and then that she probably shouldn't have had, but she was like my mama and just took rando things. Uh-huh. Thinking, oh, they'll never need them. They probably put them out to the trash, but you couldn't have taken them. But mm-hmm. she took them anyway. And now he probably got her fired. Well, <laughs> Jesus. Well, then the stain that was on his pants. They forensically proved that it was blood and, again, consistent with Tara's blood type. Keep in mind, it's 1981, so they're doing blood types, not DNA. Right. So even though the case was mostly circumstantial, 
they ended up finding Timothy Buss guilty, and the prosecutors really tried for life in prison. But because he was 13, they were like, oh, you can't do that. And so then they tried to say, okay, well, let's do like the maximum and do at least like, it was like, I think it's like 68 years or something like that. Because they were trying to say like, hello, do you see how gruesome this is? I mean, she died of blunt force trauma and then she had a stick inserted into her anus. Like, come the fuck on, you know? Well, the judge said that because this the stick was inserted post-mortem, it wasn't as gruesome. And so he sentenced him to 25 years. What? Mm-hmm. So the first part of his sentence until the age of 21 was going to be served in juvie. And then after he turned 21, he would then be transferred over into adult prison. Okay? Stay with me. Flash forward now. August 7th, 1995. Just before your birthday. And we're still in Kankakee County, Illinois. I mean, same community, same area. Ten-year-old Christopher Meyer and his siblings spend their time back and forth between their mother's house in Kankakee County and their father's, which I think was in Washington. Don't quote me on that. But they were spending their summer with their mother, and they loved living there because they were right on the river. They were very outdoorsy, and that's what drew them to the area. They hadn't been living there very long, didn't know anything of Tara's disappearance and murder decades earlier. And Christopher asked his mom if he could go to the boat launch and play. And she's like, okay, you just have to be home by five o'clock. And that was, I mean, they were, his mom was a stickler. Like if you, if you go out, you have to be home by when you have to be home. Like curfew was curfew. That was like a, you know, you can get away with a lot, but you, when you got to be home, you got to be fucking home. So he heads off to the boat launch on his bicycle. He's wearing blue shorts with a green pattern t-shirt, Chicago Blackhawks high top tennis shoes, and little Ninja Turtle underwear. Well, his mom's doing her thing at home, and she looks up at about 5.22, she said. Her name's Micah, and she realizes, wait, Christopher's not home yet. What the hell? He's always on time. Like, what's going on? And she found herself, like, getting mad. But then something in her was like, something's not right. I got to go look for him. It was like this motherly instinct, like, kicked in. And she just stopped and just knew she had to go look for him. So she went looking for him and couldn't find him and eventually brought police in. They search for Christopher for days. At first, they found one of his shoes floating in the river right by the boat launch. And then that same day, they find his bicycle. The next day, they find his other shoe floating in the river in a different part downstream from the boat launch. His mother is distraught. I mean, just destroyed at this point. You know, there's a lot of interviews with her. And she talks about how all you want to do is sleep but you can't sleep and you want to do everything that you can to find him but you also want to shut down and it's like 
you don't know whether to do interviews or not do interviews. And it's, you've got all these people at your, you know, all these reporters at your house. And it's like, you go back and you look at stuff, you know, there had been a, I can't remember what case it was that she said she remembers the mom like breaking down and it ended up being the mom who had done it and people, you know, being like, see, she was overly emotional. And so she remembers thinking like, okay, don't be so emotional on camera. Don't be so emotional on camera. So people don't think that you had anything to do with this. And then later on, she's like, I found out that people said I wasn't emotional enough. And so they thought I had something to do with it because I wasn't emotional. And she's like, you can't win for losing. And it's just such this roller coaster that you go through that nobody has any idea about. And she even talks about how when her first child was born, her daughter, she remembers that that was the same time that Adam Walsh disappeared. And she can remember holding her daughter and being like, God, that'll never happen to me. And that's so heartbreaking. And I don't, I could never live through that. And, you know, and then here it is happening to her. So they found his second shoe on August 9th. So this is two days after he went missing. Then on August 12th, they found some of his clothing at this gravel parking lot in the Kankakee State Park. On the path leading from the parking lot, they found a piece of his t-shirt and hanging in a bush nearby it was his Ninja Turtle underwear. Gosh. Well, at least that means he didn't drown. I mean... I I know it's not a great thing, but there is a chance he's alive. Yes. True. There's a really good interview with Micah, Christopher's mom, on this podcast called Shattered. There's a two-part, episode 64 and 65, on this podcast. It's really good. Episode 65 has an interview with her. And she talks about that, too, about not wanting to do interviews. And she was talking with someone, and they were like, what if he's being held somewhere, tied up somewhere, and the news is on, and he can hear you, and you're giving him the hope to survive? Do the interviews. That's what part of what drove her to do the interviews when he was missing. So while they were searching for Christopher, they interview some kids, like 14-year-olds, that said that they had seen Christopher down at the boat launch the day that he went missing. And Christopher was talking to this man. This man had dark hair, a mustache. He was wearing like a turquoise tank top and blue jean cutoff shorts. And they said he was kind of weird. Well, more so the situation was weird because the man said he was there to fish But he had a tackle box and none of his stuff matched like what he should be there fishing with. And being 14-year-old boys, they called him on it. And they're like, what's with your shit? You know how blunt and, and honest they are. And he's like, oh, well, I just moved here from Florida. I'm from here, but I just moved back from Florida. And I did like saltwater fishing while I was there. So... I don't have all my stuff from here because I was doing like like deep sea fishing type stuff there. They had another teenager as a witness that had seen Christopher at the boat launch that had a lot of like mud on his shoes and he was like washing it off. And 
they chatted for a minute and then he went and got his bike and his bike needed cleaning too. And so the kid was like, you should ride your bike into the river. He's like, no, man, I got to be home by 430. And at the time, it was 417. And Christopher was like, no, man, I got to go. Like, I got to be home. So he knew, like, he knew he had to be home on time. He said that Christopher was talking to someone in a car, though. And this person was able to pick the car out later in a parking lot. He said it was like a... 1984-85 Oldsmobile. A couple other people said that they saw Christopher pushing his bike, talking to a guy that had a mustache and dark hair and was smoking a cigarette. So some of the witnesses that had seen Christopher talking to this guy in his late 30s, early 40s, were able to get with a sketch artist and have a sketch made. Did it look like my soulmate? No. Okay, just just curious since, you know, it is FBI's most wanted that you fell for. I hate you right now. So the sketch is made. It's released. And back at home, Richard Huffman, Tara's brother, sees it and says, I know those fucking eyes. That's Timothy Buss. So he calls the police station. He says, that's fucking Timothy Buss. I know it is. And they're like, well, he in jail, right? Oh, my gosh. Was it some fucking paperwork motherfucking shit? No. That motherfucker had been out on parole for two years. What? So, because he was sentenced to 25 years, he was eligible for parole basically a day for a day. So, a day... Served as a day off his sentence for good behavior. Now, his time in the juvenile system was not good behavior. Like, push people downstairs, multiple escape attempts, like, not not good behavior. But when he got into the adult population, straight as an arrow, good behavior. So he ended up getting out in, like, 12 and a half. Fuck that. So he had been out... For two and a half years. When he got out, he went and lived in Florida with one of his old babysitters and her husband. They were some of the people who were like, oh my God, he could never do this. Like, they were some of his biggest supporters. Like, oh my God, he was just a kid. He's this, he's that, you know. Yeah. All the things. Well, it wasn't long of him living there, of them going, no way, he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. So... You got to go. He ended up, while he was living in Florida, dealing in drugs and sex work. So sex trafficking, let's be honest. And this motherfucker had a girlfriend. What? She had a history of substance abuse. And I think she was actually like addicted to cocaine or crack. I'm not sure. When they got together and was a sex worker while they were together. And then they ended up not being able to make it work in Florida. Like jobs ran out. And so he was like, let's move back to Kankakee County where I'm from. There'll be more jobs. That's where my family lives. Let's go back here. And so they moved back to Illinois. They made it last for a little while. And then she got clean and was like, 
I'm out. You're terrible. Bye. Good for her. And she left and went back to Florida. Right around that time. So she left. And then one of his siblings got married. And so it was like, she left. He kind of realized his place in the family wasn't the same because he had been gone for so long in prison. And then that was right about the time that Christopher disappeared. Wow. What a piece of shit. Yes. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Your life sucks. How about you ruin someone else's? Fuck you. Oh, and by the way, your life sucks because uh, you murdered a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. And then was a sociopath and found her body. Yeah. So police tried to go to Timothy's dad's house to get with him and talk to him. And he kind of ducked out and they basically missed him because he wanted to be missed. And so he was on the run, but not like on the run, just didn't want to be found because they didn't really have any anything. They just had some questions. And they had a car like with the description kind of thing. And he's wanted for like questioning, you know, it wasn't like a official anything. Yeah. And the person who called it in was his first victim's older brother. So, but the car that was seen with Christopher. So mm-hmm. the like 84, 85 Oldsmobile, he drove an 84 Oldsmobile. Wow. Same color. Everything. Yeah. He matched the descriptions. He was picked out of a lineup. I mean, like, it was it was lining up, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, right. but the, from the, the standpoint. Kinda, yes, like absolutely. The, it could be a vendetta type thing. But, yeah. but on the other hand, he didn't even know he was out. He was just like, yeah. wait, I know those eyes. Yeah. Those eyes have haunted me since that porch when I said, who's this kid looking at me? Why mm-hmm. is he looking at me like that? Before they'd even found Tara's body. Mm-hmm. Well, Timothy ended up checking into this hotel under a fake name. So here's the like fucking amateur fucking sleuth. The people who were working the desk at the hotel like knew what was up, recognized the car, like knew everything and were like, boop, boop, boop. hey, uh, uh, he here. I think you uh, need to come get him. So they like bring in like undercover stuff too because they're, and then they were like, oh, wait, um, wait, he's back and uh, he just put some, some really wet boots in the dumpster. Oh, now he's about to leave again. And so like, they're like given like play by play. Mm -hmm. And so the police were going to like try to get the, try to get the boots and stuff, but they like got to follow him. And so those people like bag up the boots and stuff for police and like, just have it waiting on them. I mean, these freaking motel people are the best. Uh-huh. Who are these amateur sleuths, fucking armchair detectives, fucking bagging up evidence while the police pursue the chase? And when they approach him, they're like, hey, you know, we just want to talk to you. And he's like walking in circles, not making eye contact. Because <laughs> he knows they don't want to just talk to him. Oh, he fucking knows this, what's This up. happened the last time. <laughs> hey, man, we just want to talk. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, he says, okay, okay, like, I'll, I'll go with you. So he follows in his car to the sheriff's department. He actually followed him? Yeah. I mean, what's he going to do, run? Well, hell, I don't know. They better have a car behind him. Well, he says that he wants an attorney, 
And they're like, okay, but he didn't have one. But he had this guy that had filed an appeal for him before. And the guy says, like, okay, but like, if Christopher's body has been anywhere in or near your car, like, do not let them search your car. And they were like, hey, can we search your car? And he was like, sure. Signs a little waiver. Oh, gosh. I mean, yay. Mm-hmm. But, oh, gosh. <laughs> After all this went down, because they arrested him, and they got his car, Christopher's body was found on August 15th, 1995. Eight whole days after he went missing. It was found like 20 miles from his house. It was in that Kankakee State Park. And one thing I read, actually, you'll find this interesting, was that they had actually searched this area and a psychic told them that they needed to search it better. And so they went back and under a sheet of plywood was a small, shallow grave. And that's where they found Christopher's body. First off, don't tell me what I'm going to find interesting. Second off, I found that very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know me at all. (laughs) But wow. Okay, so this is, again, it's going to get gruesome. So fast forward if you need to. Christopher had 48 stab wounds. Holy shit. He had multiple defensive wounds. And it was evident that he had been stabbed numerous times before he died. So he fought a brutal fight and died a brutal death. Bless that baby's heart. One thing I found said that he had even up to 52 stab wounds. The autopsy said that the knife wounds were probably from a fillet knife, which is important because... All the eyewitness testimonies said that the man that was with Christopher had a fillet knife in his pocket. Okay, again, very graphic part. Christopher's genitalia was removed. Oh, gosh. His body showed signs that he had been severely beaten, too. Like, contusions along his jaw. And his body was completely naked and showed a lot of signs of decomposition. So a forensic entomologist looked at the insects around the body and determined that he had been dead since the day he went missing. So before they determined even before sunset on August 7th, he wasn't held for an extended period of time or or for very long at all. Yeah, He suffered a brutal death, but at least he didn't, like, have that long suffering. He wasn't held and tortured or anything. When police were looking into Timothy's car, he had fishing poles in there, a tackle box, but there was no fillet knife in his tackle box. But again, he had everything else that you need for fishing. Salt water, not fresh water. But there was blood on the carpet of the trunk and on some of the stuff within the trunk, such as a lug wrench, a dent puller, and a bottle. That blood was later forensically identified as Christopher's. Bless it. There were some hairs found in the car that were also forensically linked to Christopher's hairs. 
There was soil recovered from the claw hammer in the car that was forensically linked to the soil around Christopher's body. So on and on and on, long story short, it went to trial. This time, Timothy was convicted and given the death penalty. However, later, Illinois commuted all of their death penalties to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he's serving life in prison now. Because apparently, Illinois had, I mean, I'm sure, as does every state, but Illinois was having a lot, like, I forget the number I heard, like 1 in 10 or 2 in 10 or something like that. People on death row, like, being proven innocent. And so wow, the governor, I think it was back in 2003. Anyway, the governor had, like, two days left in an office and commuted all of the death sentences to life in prison. Well, Timothy needs a bus to run over him. It's so fucked up. I mean, there is no reason that someone who kills a fucking child like that should be out of prison. You know, and here's the thing, too, is that with him, with using, this is going to get graphic again, but using the stick to sodomize her was so he wouldn't be, like, forensically linked to her. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't get caught. Like, Fuck you. Yeah. And probably because you're 13 and couldn't get it up. Like you wanted to and you could physically, but in that moment, you couldn't. Yeah. So fuck you. And, you know, right around the time that the first murder happened, it had not been long since he had been to court with his mom. And his mom basically had said in open court in front of him and his siblings that she didn't want them. Wow. And so she like moved to another state, started a new life, had other kids. He lived with his dad and kind of bounced between his dad and his aunts and his grandma and basically anybody who could handle him. And it was kind of like a community effort among his aunts and grandma and dad to try to handle him because he was so bad. Wow. And had so many discipline problems. And the reason why he didn't go on that trip to Six Flags wasn't because it was too expensive. It's because the principal said, are you going to act right? Because if you're not going to act right, don't fucking go. And he was like, well, I'm not fucking going. Wow. So it had nothing to do with money. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. He's a fucking troublemaker. Well, that's PG of you. Well, I mean, but you know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> just like, just like the shit, just like yeah. the, just like the fucking petty shit that he would do. And I mean, and it was more like he would, I mean, he just did bad shit, just like beat people up. And there was more, I forget, I forget all the stuff that he did even before Tara. I mean, he was not, he was not a good kid. He just was always in trouble and it was always this battle of I mean, fucking, I don't know, oppositional defiant disorder, some shit like that. I don't know what was going on, but he had some serious shit. And a 13-year-old that fucking kills a 5-year-old like that. And then not only that, does what he did to the body. Mm-hmm. And then is like, <laughs> let me go find the body mm-hmm. and then all of that and then shows zero remorse during prison the whole time he's in juvie does 
all the bad shit and then is like, oop, I'm in adult prison now. You know he's a, a little fuck, little peon in adult prison, 21-year-old mm-hmm. just coming out of fucking juvie. You know they're going to fucking eat him alive. And so you know he's going to act right there and try to get out early. And then what? So, of course, he's going to do right. Yeah. Because he has to. Because he didn't want his ass beat. Yep. And he worked the system. And exactly. He did what he had to do to get what he fucking wanted. It wasn't because he was better. It's because he had to do what he had to do to get what he fucking wanted. And then he got out of prison. And woe is him. Shit didn't go right. So, he killed another fucking child. But I do want to end on this very... what? Well, two things that I... I saw there's there was an ID show and on that podcast shattered. I heard these on um I can't remember which was on which. Christopher's mom said that when she heard how many times he had been stabbed and basically like how long it took him to die during the trial, she had to she had to leave the courtroom. Like she was physically getting ill from hearing that. Mm. And so she had to leave the courtroom and she said she was driving home that day from court and it dawned on her that Christopher did exactly what she told him to do. And instead of going home that day straight from court and being sad, she went straight to the cemetery and told Christopher she was proud of him because she had always told her kids that if somebody tries to hurt you, you fight like hell. And you scream and you kick and you fight and you do the best you can to get away from them. And Christopher fucking did that. Yeah. And then the other thing that she said was right before Christopher was murdered, he had drawn a butterfly for one of her coworkers who it was her birthday. At his funeral, the coworker was saying how much that meant to her and how he's like a butterfly and he's free now and all of that. And then Right after that, when they went to the graveside service, there was a butterfly that stayed around them at the graveside service. So I just thought that was kind of a sweet ending to this horrible fucking story. Yeah. it. Yeah. It's a good bookend. I hope yours is better. Definitely not that. Whew. All right, well, we are going to leave your story here in the U.S., and we're going to travel across the pond to Ireland, and we're going to talk about some folklore, vampire folklore, to be exact. The Darug Dua is an ancient vampire legend that has been passed down generation through generation, and so, as it is with most folklore, we don't know all the deets. And in this case, we don't know the Darug Dua's name, but we do know that it means red bloodsucker. As opposed to, you know, another color of blood. And we do know that she was a person before she became this notorious legend because she wasn't born evil. But we've all heard that saying, a woman scorned. Picture it. Waterford, Ireland, many, many centuries ago. There was a young woman who was gorgeous and also kind-hearted and truly just Beautiful inside and out. She was a magnificent person and pure. She hadn't let her hardships growing up taint her outlook on the world at all. And another thing we know is true beauty doesn't care about a class system. And so even though she was this true beauty, she was also poor. She did have a rough childhood and 
no real future in sight. However, now men from all over began to take notice of her porcelain skin, blonde hair, clover green eyes, and shapely body. And her future was looking brighter with each potential suitor. Nevertheless, True Love also doesn't know a class system. Oh, shit. Because she had already fallen in love with someone else. A local farmhand peasant boy. He was thought to be her equal in physical attraction and also generous and kind-hearted like her as well. But they also shared that financial struggle. And so her father refused to even consider him as an option for her, even though she begged and begged. I mean, we're just going to ignore the fact that it's so fucked up that, that he gets to decide who she marries, but I digress. Right. Says the girl who still wants Colby to ask my dad if he can marry me. <laughs> but I digress again. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, the thing about her, her father wasn't a loving man. He wasn't looking out for her future or doing anything that was in her best interest. It was all for him. He was older in age now, and if he married his daughter off to a rich man, they'd pay lots of money, and that would give him financial security, and he'd have a place in their community. He would be part of society then. Uh-huh. Me, 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 me. What is he, a Leo like Donna? Hey, now. Okay, Lizzie McGuire. Hey, now. Hey, now. This is what dreams are made of. Literally, this is what he's singing. <laughs> he wants a place in the community he's dreaming. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Did you have the three cups of coffee or was that me? <laughs> it's the cup I'm having right now. <laughs> well, he told his daughter that she was forbidden to speak to the peasant boy anymore. There would be no future for them without money. And that was the final word. How'd that work out for him? Well, her father knew he was losing grip on the situation. He needed to strike while the iron was hot. And as his luck would have it, one day a local lord saw his daughter and vowed to have her as his own. He would give her father whatever he wanted because she was that beautiful. And so, of course, her dad was like, cha-ching and goodbye. It didn't matter that this lord was more than three times her age or known to be aggressive and cruel. It didn't matter at all. Her dad would finally have power and wealth which he probably felt entitled to. Like, I had to raise her. I had to do all of the things to make sure she survived. She owes me this. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you? Mm -hmm. Ugh. Well, on the wedding day, she cried throughout the ceremony. But it's like her tears fell on deaf ears. All besides her true love, the farmhand. All I can picture is that scene in Ever After when Prince Harry's going to marry the Spanish princess and she's like wailing. Yes. That's all I can imagine. Yes. But like everyone's just ignoring it. And, and it's he's like, like uh. Mm -hmm. But like this time, it's just like, get on with it. She's going to marry me. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm, yeah, go ahead. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're forcing her to do this, but go ahead. Oh, it's just so sad. Well, turns out no one really knew how abusive or vile the Lord really was. If he has a reputation and people know how aggressive he is and all of that, if he's that way in public, 
Think about how bad it has to be when the doors are closed. Right. Well, and he's powerful, so no one's going to stand up to him anyway. Exactly. And much less for someone who's poor. You know what I mean? Like, she has nothing to offer. He only wanted her as his wife for pleasure, which... Duh. Duh. And to be a trophy that no one else could have. But she still held out hope that her true love would come and rescue her as he vowed to do. And the Lord could see this in her eyes, and it angered him. So he started locking her away for days, and then weeks at a time in his tower. And then he introduced his new bride to some of his favorite games. His most favorite being where he would slide his gleaming blade against her soft, pale flesh, pressing harder and harder until he drew blood and watched that red, wet liquid trickle down her ivory skin. He loved watching her in agony, and with each slice and every wince, his appetite grew more and more. Oh, fuck. And this was too much for the beautiful, sweet girl to bear. She tried to be strong and courageous and, above all else, hopeful. But soon she realized that no one was going to come and rescue her. All of her hope was lost. She knew that her father couldn't care less because now he had what he longed his whole life for. A title, land, power. No one from town had come either, which made her sad because she knew that some of her friends had to have noticed that she was gone for weeks at a time. But again, no one came to check on her. And worst of all, her true love never showed up to save her. So she had to save herself. And the only way she could think of doing that was to quit eating. And so she did. It was the one thing she could have total control over. Her cruel husband would do anything he wanted to, but ultimately couldn't force her to swallow and keep the food down. And over time, he figured out that she had been hiding the small portions of food he gave her because her pale skin had lost its luster, her naturally red-tinted lips had gone gray, and it was easy to see that she was dying, even if it was at what must have been for her an agonizingly slow rate. And because he was a heartless bastard, he showed her no mercy the entire time. He still played his bloodletting games with her and was still abusive to her in every way he was before. And then one day, the beautiful girl was no more. And instead of a huge ceremony celebrating her life, she was buried in a small churchyard next to the tree known as Strongbow Tree. So something to note that folklore shows at this point in Ireland It was customary for people to pile stones onto graves of, like, recently dead people to prevent them from, like, coming back to life, you know, and, like, roaming around. However, no one placed any stones on her gravesite. And it's unclear why, but they could have done it out of guilt because they knew how abusive he was and no one saved her. And so it was kind of, like, out of respect for her, like... We don't think you're going to come back and, like, do anything to us. That kind of thing. Or maybe they just remembered how she was before she married him. How pure and loving and caring. Maybe they thought, you know, again, respect. 
because why would they need protection from her? But what the townspeople didn't know is that it said that with her last breath, as weak as it might have been, she vowed vengeance on the ones who had wronged her. And so here's where it breaks into two versions. There's one version that is like the lover's version. It says that there was like one person who mourned her, her true love, the farmhand. But even though he never made it to rescue her, he never missed a visit to her grave. And he would sit there and speak out loud, declaring his love for her, telling about how his heart ached with a loss because of her death, and how he was filled with a desire to see her again. And if he had but one wish, it would be for her to come back to him. The other version strictly focuses on her need for revenge. And either way, whichever you choose to believe, on the night of her one-year anniversary of her death, she rose from the grave. She first went to visit her father, and she found him sleeping soundly in his nice, fancy, cozy bed. And that enraged her more, that there was no sadness from him on this day, There was no thought of her at all. He was still happy because what he got from selling her. She moved closer to the bed, anger swirling inside, and then she leaned over her father, and she ever so gently placed her lips upon his and inhaled deeply, drawing every breath of life out of him. And when she stood up, her father was nothing more than a shell of a man but that's all he ever was really anyway. Damn, the shade. (laughs) Well, she didn't waste any time. She made her way to her husband's house. The asshole had remarried before she had even been buried like a month. Not surprised. Right. Him and his new wife were doing the nasty in bed and were tipsy on some meat or whatever, so they didn't even notice her enter the room. Until it was too late. And she was overcome with anger and resentment. And she flung herself at the couple. And the new bride was kind of a casualty of war. But she sucked the life out of their bodies as well. And she just couldn't stop at that. She needed more from her husband. He deserved to pay for his sins more than that. And so she played her own game with him. And drained him of his blood. And thus, the Daragdua was created. With blood flowing through her, she felt more alive than she had in her whole last year of life. But she started craving more and more blood, and she didn't know how she would quench her thirst. But it said that one night a year, on the anniversary of her death, she will rise up from her grave She'll use her beauty to lure men out to her gravesite and then deplete them of every drop of their blood. According to the legend, the only way to stop the Daragdua is to pile stones on her grave like the townspeople failed to do before. It became a community event on the eve of her anniversary that the locals would get together, place stones on her grave, just to feel more safe, to protect their sons, to do all the things. But don't get too comfortable because shit happens. Natural forces can cause stones to fall. Maybe she's too starved and nothing can hold her down because she has to feed. 
Or, you know, sometimes people think legends are fake and not scary at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Carrie. So maybe after a certain generation, they won't bother to place a stone anymore. Or after a few drinks, they go remove a few stones. Very true. So if you see a beautiful blonde with porcelain skin, red lips, be careful. And whatever you do, don't let her sink her teeth in. Da da da. Well, that was a good ending to that shit fucking story that I had. Right? Not near as sad. You think it's real? Well, of course I do. Nah. I think the original story is probably real. Yeah, that's what I mean. But I don't think, like, this, like, ghost spirit is coming up to, like, drain your blood. Right. Oh, oh, oh. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. But I'm sure she existed, and I'm sure this psychopath, knife-wielding lord existed. Right. Which, it also made me think of Ever After, when she gets traded, and it's the guy who played Riff Raff on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mm -hmm. and he's evil, you know? Well, but it's also, I mean, she gets put up in the tower. It's like a Grimm's fairy tale. But this was before that. But you know what I mean, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. you think that it, it started somewhere. Oh, no, I know, but this was supposedly centuries before. But I'm saying, if that was even still passed down, who's to say that Grimm's were original concepts? Right. I mean, they could still have been stories that they even heard growing up. Yeah. I mean, they say technically nobody has an original idea. You know, like movies and music and all that. But it's got to start somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was a way better ending this week than last week. Yeah. I like it when you end them. Yeah, because they're not so fucking sad. That's what I'm saying. I like weeks when you end the week. So every other week, it's my favorite. <laughs> well, do y'all believe in the uh, medulla oblongata? <laughs> What's it called? The Dua. Do y'all believe in the Dua? Did I say it right? Yeah. Yes. Let us know. Yeah, for sure. An Irish vampire. Well, and let us know your opinions on Timothy Buss. And also, remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.